Hello, and welcome to this episode of Inside Briefing, the podcast from the Institute for Government. I'm Hannah White. For the first time in what feels like a long time, Boris Johnson is not making headlines. So can Rishi Sunak breathe a sigh of relief? Well, not really. Instead, this week has brought a barrage of bad economic news for the Prime Minister to fend off. But what can he actually do about stubbornly high inflation, rising interest rates and a predicted surge in mortgage payments? We'll look at the options, if any, Sunak has available to him. Whatever the cause might be for the UK's economic woes, don't mention the B word. Well, actually, less. Is Brexit to blame? Well, this Friday marks the seventh anniversary of the 2016 referendum result. We'll take a deep breath and take stock of how that has worked out. We'll then take a closer look at Northern Ireland, the part of the UK perhaps most impacted by the decision to leave the EU. It's not been an easy seven years, and we'll explore what's going on. It's Glastonbury Festival this weekend, and I'm sure we're all very excited about Elton John's farewell gig, but the headline acts you really want are here on the IFG podcast. IFG Associate Director and Brexit expert Jess Sargent, and our Senior Fellow and one-time Government Advisor Giles Wilkes. Hi Jess, hi Giles. Hi Hi Hannah. And I'm delighted too to be joined by The Guardian City Editor, Anna Isaac. Hi Anna. Hello, hi. So, let's start with the economy and very grateful to you, Anna, for joining us on a day which is uh, quite a big one for you with the Bank of England's interest rate announcement. Giles, it's been a week of rather bad news. For any non-economists listening, can you explain to us what's been going on, please? Yeah, it's terrible news and it is quite difficult to explain because it sounds like the difference between one or two sm- small percentage points on a figure that people don't directly experience. But what has actually happened is we've had the inflation print for May and that was expected to be a fall down to 8.4% and instead it stayed steady at 8.7%. Now that sounds like a really small amount but it's added to the evidence that inflation is not conquered and in particular that inflation has become a domestically generated phenomenon which means underlying inflation when you strip out the stuff that's caused by things we really can't control like gas prices most obviously that underlying inflation which is driven by wages and services and the demand that's going through our own economy is staying really strong in fact it seems to be going up to around seven percent now underlying inflation is what the bank of england is most concerned about underlying inflation is what the bank feels it can basically control by using the instrument interest rate instrument to try to stop wages and prices rising as fast as they are. But it means that our expectation of what that Bank of England decision is going to have to be, and today it came out with a half point rise, which was not going to be on the cards before this inflation figure. Um, that Those inflation expectations have hit interest rate expectations, which means mortgages, which means basically To put it, I mean, the words of Karen Ward, who was a former advisor to um, Philip Hammond, the Chancellor, she said, we're going to need a recession to slow down inflation. And so higher interest rates, higher inflation, just terrible news for the government and the economy. Anna, what's your reading? How bleak is this? Giles is not very happy today. It's not great. Um, Before we sort of all lie down and put a paper bag over our heads, I'd say sort of we need to bear in mind that there are recessions of different shades so it could be two quarters of quite a, a small contraction rather than sort of the scale of something like the the aftermath of the financial crisis. And I think with a lot of comparisons with the bank rate as it is today being at its highest level since 08, a lot of people are having these sort of, are we talking about something of the same, the same magnitude? Um, that doesn't mean to say it isn't really serious and Giles is 
by and large, absolutely correct in, in his analysis that it is, it is very dire. Richard Ramsey, who's a, a, an economist based in Northern Ireland, said, you know, this is, this is an awful backdrop for the general election. And I think that's probably true whether you're on the left or the right, because you're not going to have an awful lot of jam to spread. The interest costs of government debt, that's going to be shown in the, the next OBR forecast, that's going to go up. The Bank of England is struggling to find enough levers because actually in, in a scenario where you have a lot of fixed mortgages, you're really sort of clobbering harder a smaller share of the population. It, it makes it harder to feed through. So when the Bank of England is pulling this handbrake, it, 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 doesn't, it can only necessarily sort of impact hard a couple of wheels on the car. It doesn't necessarily immediately feed through in the same way to other parts of the economy, or at the very least, it doesn't suck out the the money, the energy for economic growth that you have with disposable income. So it's going to have to sort of stay high for a sustained period of time. They may have to raise rates to the point, and this might be might be it, although they are still probably going to go a bit higher, to the point where it triggers um, a recession. But it's also about sustaining that, right? So, so they think that rates are going to average 5.5% over the next three years. So what we're talking about is a whole new environment at this level. So you're not going to suddenly see rates being slashed to what people got used to as a normal of ultra low rates once we come out of um, a potential recession. So it's a super aggressive adjustment. It's going to be very painful. As ever with these things, it's going to be borne by smaller groups of the population first before it feeds through into a real whole economy pain so i think it's uh, yeah i think it, i think it's bad but we don't know how bad it's going to be yet but we know it's going to leave us with few good options for radical economic policy going into the next election i think can i make a point though about the channel by which the bank of england thinks it's going to affect the economy because i i'm actually really keen to see a bank of england monetary policy member actually stand up and say this is how we think interest rate rises affect the economy because the focus is naturally on mortgages it's what it's what robert peston standing in front of the bank of england talks about mortgage rates going up and we all have well those of us old enough have memories of the early 90s where massive repossessions that seemed to be the cause of the recession and the manifestation of it but interest rates slow down the economy in lots and lots of different ways it's it's not just the mortgage rate. If it did rely on the mortgage rate, then we've got no chance of stopping inflation because to put it in really brutal terms, the nominal size of the economy in cash terms is about, I don't know, four or five percent higher than the Bank of England wanted it. That's about 100 billion pounds. You cannot take 100 billion pounds of spending out of the economy through mortgage payments. They're not that big. It's about all sorts of things. It affects the incentive of businesses to invest. It's the most important variable into that big spreadsheet every business used to plan an investment. It affects the currency. So if we hadn't raised interest rates, the currency might be back at parity with the dollar. Instead, it's at about 125, 127 or so. And it affects the credibility of the Bank of England because people sit down, businesses sit down, workers sit down and work out what can I ask for? What prices can I put up? And the, and the whole expectation of the path of the economy is affected by the Bank of England's decisions and its and its words. So we we should focus on mortgages, but they're only one of the one of the channels. And I'd love to hear the Bank of England talk about those other channels too, because otherwise you're going to get this bad narrative going that we're trying to rely on about two million people to drive an economy of about 33 million workers. And there's a lot more than that going on. And also it runs the risk of everyone saying, well, we need to help these mortgages people because they're like the whole economy. And I'm afraid it goes a lot further than that. Well, that's what I was going to pick up on actually, Giles, because 
it is that is very much the way it's worked thus far, hasn't it? There's been this discussion about mortgages, and then that has been what's fed into the political narrative. So that's what MPs have been picking up and, and talking about, rather than those wider effects on the economy of of this rate rise. So the government thus far has has been trying to argue that inflation has been largely driven by external factors beyond their control. Mm-hmm. That now looks less plausible as a line, as you were saying. But what what other options are open to, to Jeremy Hunt in terms of responding to this situation? Well, Jeremy Hunt and Rishi Sunak have both set out a target for lowering inflation. They've really nailed their colours to that particular mast, halving it by the end of this year, which I've worked out means you need inflate, um, the, the inflation index to rise by only 2% in the last six months, which is much, much lower than it has been. So it looks like they're going to miss that. But they can't be pushing while the Bank of England's pulling. They, they need to be basically doing the same thing. So they cannot put a lot of fiscal fuel into the economy because that will just force the Bank of England to act more. And you could argue that it was the large amount of fiscal fuel we put in through the COVID period, very rightly, that is now being ignited. And it was ignited by the gas price surge, which they couldn't control. But that then ignited a domestic inflationary surge that they can with really tough policy. And Anna, what's, Labour, what's, what's Labour's response to this been? Well, it was interesting because obviously with Rachel Reeves, a bit like Karen Ward, they, they both have historical links to the Bank of England. And I think Reeves was being being pretty careful about the fact that you can't offer any kind of significant amount of cash just now because as Giles says it could act as a stimulus stimulus generate more inflation and so that's a huge problem um you know I also agree with Giles but I I do think the problem is is that where do you see consumer panic and there is an element now of consumer panic within that group of mortgage holders who are also probably relatively proactive voters and are people that will go out and, and ask for a pay rise tomorrow so you know it, it's it's significant, but I totally agree that we need to we need to think about it in a more whole economy way, and I think that's what Reeves is trying to do. But that's really difficult. It's a difficult message to send to say you're important, but you're you're not that important, even though you're a very important voting constituency. And also, we're in an aftermath of huge government interventions, right, and blanket government interventions. It really wasn't that long ago where people were getting non-means-tested money off their energy bills in an entirely blanket approach. So we're having to see a big adjustment in the political narrative around, well, we can't catch everyone every time. And it's very hard to sell a brand of the fiscally prudent Labour Party that's going to do the right thing for the economy as a whole, but is also seen to be sufficiently compassionate. And, and I think that was something that, that, that she was struggling to balance at the moment. They have asked for, you know, essentially something we did see in the pandemic, which was this notion of how do you handle people that fall into arrears and how do you manage that? So, um, yeah, we are obsessing about mortgages again. Sorry, sorry, Giles. But um, um, but but those people that are in their first six months of um, not being able to make a payment of some kind. So it's, it's about providing information to people at the right time. So. Uh, if they want to switch on to interest only, um, because that's all they can manage. If they're making a choice between um, saving and overpaying on the mortgage because um, their income's such that they might actually struggle in terms of future mortgage payments, that's something, you know, a 6% plus style mortgage. How do they make those decisions? So it's really about ensuring, and, and it's coming a bit ahead of this consumer duty that the Financial Conduct Authority is going um, to put in place from July 31, um, that 
banks and um, those offering mortgages must communicate the various options consumers have um, to make a good choice rather than just being in a scenario where they end up damaging their credit rating or if they have to damage their credit rating and they do have to go into risk, how do you handle that? Um, so it's it's going to be about the sort of the really a focus on those people that are at the, at the bottom bit of the jam sandwich that are, that are getting hit hardest, quickest with 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 changes in in, in the Bank of England's headline rates feeding through into mortgage prices. But I, I, you know, I, I think it's I think the other thing that Labour will be watching and wait, waiting for is to see how the mortgage market as a whole responds to this because with the big adjustment that we saw yesterday where where you know when market expectations became 50-50 for for this um, slightly bigger rate hike that we've seen today um what you may start to see i think is is a bit of well we know we're getting closer to a peak we sort of know the bit the, the travel if the bank of england's taking it this seriously this this hard this fast and and people are still confident that 6% is going to be the peak the the plumbing that banks and mortgage providers have to plumb into plug into in markets might just calm down a bit. We probably would have seen a, a stronger reaction and a bit more panicked political response to that market reaction if we hadn't seen this this fifty basis points um, rate hike today. So I think it's it's really challenging for Labour, but they they are in exactly the same spot, and that's why it's an awful backdrop for for the next general election. Is that there's just not going to be much room, and so you're not going to necessarily have a radically differing policy offering from either side when it comes to dealing with inflation and interest rates next year. Just just from a political point of view, Rishi Sunak said that getting inflation down was personally on him, but that's looking pretty risky now. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, as one of the non-economist listeners that you were referring to earlier, um, you know, I think there's obviously this commitment that Rishi Sunak has has made on inflation. But to some extent, I think what voters will be judging by is, do I feel like things are getting better or worse for me? As Anna was saying, it's obviously challenging for both parties to put forward a solution to a lot of the problems we're facing in terms of the cost of living crisis and the economy. But I think for a lot of voters, they'll be thinking, do I want to stick or do I want to twist? And actually, we've been promised to some extent that things were going to start looking better towards the second half of this year. And right now, it doesn't feel like that's necessarily going to happen. So I think it's going to be a real challenge for him. But I think probably the biggest challenge over anything else, because ultimately, these things make a huge amount of difference to the way that that people live their lives and to some extent will eclipse a lot of other policy questions that politicians will be grappling with going into the next election. Giles, do you think the last week has changed when we are likely to see the next general election? Well, if anything, they're going to be wondering if it's possible to put it right into January 2025, because uh, I do think there's a kind of Micawber principle going on that something will turn up is the sort of dominant Tory strategy right now, and also that some of these bad effects will pass through, and maybe some of the better things will start to show. I mean, one point we should all make is one of the reasons inflation is a lot higher now than it was expected to be eight, ten months ago, or during the, the trust era, is that the economy is stronger. We were all expecting quite a deep recession and workers were maybe expecting, you know, I'm gonna, my job's going to be in trouble. When that doesn't turn up, then people ask for what they can get. And likewise, in terms of prices. So, you know, the Conservatives will be hoping maybe growth and unemployment staying lower. That will be the thing we can focus on. And then maybe inflation won't be halved in 2023, but it will be by spring 2024. So if I were one of them, I can't see the point in rushing to the exit. Anna, seeing we have you with us, I wanted to ask you about a story that you've been leading on, and that's the CBI, 
where are we in that story now? It's really about their their situation post the vote by their membership. So it was a good result from a low turnout. So about a third of its slightly depleted membership backed it at at a recent vote. Sorry, the turnout was a third and then the the votes were 93%. So it, it won the people in the room, but it didn't get everyone to the room. It's laid out a program of how it, how it's going to sort of change its culture. It's exploring ways to sort of reinvigorate its relationships with the opposition and with government. Interestingly, Labour has sort of in a, in a low-key way, seemingly from reports, re-engaged. But on the other hand, government still hasn't in the same way. And some of the other big business groups, such as the, the British Chambers of Commerce and the Federation of Small Businesses, they don't yet feel ready to have CBI back at the table in this so-called B5 loosely linked lobbying superstructure that we have in the UK. It's a bit of a watch and wait. It's obviously very sad for some of the staff there who are who are facing redundancy as a result of having lost some corporate members. So it's a it's a very sensitive time for them still. I think it's I think it's fair to say, and it will be very important to see what connections they can regain um, in the next six months because obviously staying highly relevant going into the next election is going to be crucial. I think it feeds back into the point Giles was making, which is we're all very worried about the the headline rate in terms of what it means for mortgage holders, but we should all be very worried about what it means for business investment. The last decade for business investment in the UK has just been absolutely awful. And not seeing a very strong business lobbying landscape, not seeing very strong lines coming out from either party really about how their plan for stimulating business investment in the UK is very, very worrying. And and from sort of a you know a whole economy standpoint, that that should be our by far our biggest worry now, even with everything that's happening. So it, it is troubling to see another potential crisis emerging where it becomes a narrative entirely focused on consumers, householders when we should be seeing it as we're adding years to what looks to be a lost decade in business investment. Yeah, I, I'd, I'd agree very strongly with that. Um, I would say that investment is now the watchword, even above skills, which tends to be the biggest uh, con- uh, complaint about the UK economy. It's a really good point about the CBI, and I, I, I've been following Anna's uh, excellent journalism on this. I can't really comment on what's brought them down, but it's the question of what the CBI is for, if there's a possible tiny silver lining, as far as I can see from meeting one or two people there, they are at least having a really good think about what is a big organisation like us for? How could we be more effective if we have to be smaller? And it's a really interesting question to any former insider, because frankly, you often look at these five and you go, which of you actually speaks for business? How much of this is just self-interested as opposed to really useful intelligence gathering? Now, I think the CBI if it was able to restructure itself in a way that really represents business, could help answer some of these critical questions like, what do you need for business investment? What what is has been missing? Has it just been a series of accidents or is there something structurally wrong with the UK? And the government should be absolutely keen to find out about this because it's recently, in the, in the spring budget, it uh, announced a incredibly generous scheme, the uh, full expensing of capital investment, which is meant to make investment the blindingly obvious choice for every company in the country. It hasn't made it permanent, which it's under a lot of pressure to do now. But if it does that, and we still don't see business investment pick up, despite it trying to get absolutely everything right, then that is going to leave us much, much poorer in the long term. And that problem needs to be solved. And we need really good business representation as a part of the answer. Well, let's move on to an anniversary that some will celebrate and others less so. 
And that's the seventh anniversary of the referendum on the UK's membership of the EU. Jess, our colleague Jill Rutter has put out a new IFG comment piece on the state of play, evaluating the years since the referendum. It's not entirely positive, but let's start by searching for the plus points. Can you give us a rundown of what you see as the Brexit benefits? So I think there's sort of three key areas of Brexit benefits. The first is trade. One of the promises um, during the referendum campaign was that there'll be the ability to do trade deals with new countries. And the UK has managed to roll over many of its existing deals with Canada and Japan and improve those in some ways as well. We've got new deals with New Zealand and Australia. And the UK has also joined the CPTP, which is a, a different trading block there. In terms of better tailored policies, we've seen a new agricultural policy to replace the common agricultural policy, which was much criticised as, as, as an EU scheme. We've also had legislation on financial services. Um, we've had a new subsidy control regime, which is intended to be less bureaucratic and difficult for businesses to navigate. And then in terms of spending, a lot of the money that used to be spent through EU spending schemes um, has now been brought back into UK government control. We've got programs like the Shared Prosperity Fund and the Leveling Up Fund, which could potentially allow the government to better target spending to meet its broader economic objectives. But I think in all those areas, there are also some caveats um, and some things that perhaps haven't gone as far as people were expecting. So on trade, there hasn't been this big US deal that a lot of people were hoping for. And again, was was talked about quite a lot during the referendum campaign in the areas of regulatory divergence. I don't think we've quite found those big areas of divergence that will deliver big rewards for businesses. Um, that's something the government's been looking for. Um, although I should say that, you know, now that we have left the EU, there's not necessarily a huge rush on that. And I think it's a positive thing that the UK government didn't press ahead with the retained EU law bill as planned, which would have just sunsetted a lot of EU regulations there. Um, similarly on spending, I think there are also some criticisms you could make here. There's been some discussion about whether the distribution of those funding has been completely fair um, and also some criticisms for the devolved administrations who feel like they've been cut out somewhat. So a bit of a, a mixed picture. I think there have definitely been some, some benefits, but in some areas they haven't delivered as much as might have been promised initially. And some of it's still rather wait and see, isn't it? But what about some of the benefits that have been claimed in terms of things like the vaccine rollout and the UK's response to Russia's invasion in Ukraine? Are those genuinely Brexit benefits? So I think because the UK government has been very clear to demonstrate the benefits of Brexit, as you say, I think there are some cases that are um, not exactly clear. On the vaccine, I think, I mean, the, the main thing to say is that although obviously the UK vaccine was Roll, the rollout was faster than the EU. That wasn't necessarily as a result of Brexit. And we know that actually, because the UK approvals were made in accordance with EU law, because during that point, we were still in the UK EU transition period. So I think that's a hard case to make. Likewise, on Ukraine, although the UK has definitely been a leader, and we should give the UK government credit for that, it's not clear that that wouldn't have been possible as a member of the EU. You know, if we look at examples like the Iraq war, being an EU member didn't prevent that. So yeah, I think there's a bit of a question mark on some of these claims. And what about the things that haven't worked out so well? 
Yeah, so I think one of those is obviously Brexit's impact on the economy. Um, and being on this particular podcast, I think there are two people much better qualified to discuss that. So I'll, I'll leave them for that. But obviously, you know, there has been a change in the trading relationship with our closest trading partner, and that has resulted in some disruption at borders. And actually, we haven't seen the full extent of that yet because the UK has repeatedly delayed the introduction of border, border controls of goods entering from the EU. So we could actually see some more of that going into the autumn, which poses challenge for the current government. I think another big impact of Brexit has been the sort of political and constitutional implications. It's been hugely disruptive for Northern Ireland politics, which I know we'll come to talk on talk about later. And it's also put a big strain on the union. The Scottish and Welsh governments really strongly oppose Brexit and a lot of the actions that have been taken to regulate the UK internal market now that we're outside the EU single market have also been very controversial and will, will continue to, to, do, to do so. So I think those are some of the lasting implications that, that we will see as well as the sort of uh, regulatory ones. And Anna, I think uh, Jess teed up the question for you there, really, but how much is Brexit to blame for the UK's economic woes? And in particular, as we said, you're the city editor. What, what has the impact been on the city? We don't yet know what the full impact of Brexit will be on sort of if we're looking at goods trade. Let's take that as one sort of niche. So the border operating model has suffered from the classic Whitehall disease of becoming a slightly different acronym. So it's now the border target operating model, which is really unfortunate because it just spells out bottom. But that's that's <laughs> that's meant to come to fruition in October. Everyone I talk to who works at ports is really hoping it becomes a thing because they've had to build and demolish checkpoints a couple of times in, in several instances in the UK. Um, and, you know, in terms of understanding the implications of this, People in the sector describe this as the second half of Brexit, right? So, so that's really significant. And when we're talking about the sensitivities, political and economic, around things like goods pricing, particularly food, this could be very sensitive indeed. So it will be interesting to see whether or not um, Rishi Sunak's personal commitment to do everything he can to halve inflation might mean that this deadline yet again um, gets diminished. But I, I think they might try and stick to it, but it's going to be very interesting to see how that is in practice. Now, the city, you know, because I'll have I'll have people that, that might shout at me if I don't move very quickly onto services trade. We do not have a meaningful agreement that covers sub substantial parts of um, UK-EU trade in services still. So, um, uh, you know, for all every page of, of the TCA, and I unfortunately have read all of it, very little, um, apart from some of the annexes, covers trade and services. We still don't have mutual recognition of professional qualifications. Now, when we're thinking about some of the people that are asking for pay rises right now, well-paid services professionals are among those. So labour mobility might be feeding through a bit into inflation, but it's very hard to measure. Um, and we have to bear in mind that actually of all the things that the Bank of England has been terribly worried about, because we've had significant migration, some of it very highly skilled from a lot of other areas, it's not necessarily Brexit's impact on migration that's having a, a huge impact on, on top line inflation. But um, there's certainly been a depression of investment in expanding some of the services footprints in the UK by major companies because they're not quite sure 
of what the long-term relationship might look like on services, or they've made a decision that in a, in a world where they're relatively cash-strapped, they'll go to the US, they'll go to Asia, they'll do something different. So um, we're still seeing, a, a, you know, it, it would be interesting. And I think that I think it would be fair to say that there were ambitions in number 10 when, uh, hopes at least, when, when Rishi Sunak took over, that you would have seen more progress on things like financial services in terms of EU-UK um, ties there. Um, so I, th- I think... I think the jury's still out in terms of saying that it's had this enormous impact on inflation or the wider economy, but it's certainly, you know, it's a less trade dense relationship now and it's on our doorstep. So um, it's, it's significant for, for, for UK trade and therefore feeds through into, 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 into growth, but it's, it's harder to measure for inflation, I'd say, but Giles may have a different view. Uh, not necessarily. I think Anna's very wise to say the jury's still out and it's going to be extremely hard to disaggregate inflation into a particular part that's been affected by Brexit or not. So I've only got a really windy generalised statement to make, which is that nothing has happened so far that has disproven the OBR's basic judgment, as well as lots of other think tanks like UK and a changing Europe, that uh, our GDP is going to be 4 or 5% lower as a result of Brexit. And that's showing up through effects like weaker investment, which really did stop recovering um, when when the Brexit vote happened. Changes in the labour force, very good point that we've gained a lot of high-skilled people um, in the new regime, but we've disrupted the sort of workers we're getting. Now, when an economy loses capacity, what it really means is it loses supply capacity, which means its ability to grow without inflation is impeded. So my instinct is that the gigantic disruptions that have happened to the economy in the last few years because of COVID have been added to by Brexit, which will have undermined our ability to grow easily without running into little bottlenecks and running into shortages of this, that or the other, and therefore seeing more price rises. So it's going to be really hard to disaggregate. It might be that in five or 10 years time, they still don't have the data to prove anything definitively. After all, we don't have a, an absolutely perfect counterfactual non-Brexiting UK economy to compare against. But it's kind of consistent with the predictions that if you do something like Brexit, damage your supply chains, add a bit of disruption, you're going to have a slightly more inflationary environment afterwards. And that's what we've got. So the suggestive data for me is that Brexit is one of the reasons we're doing a bit worse than everyone else. And yet nobody, Labour or the Lib Dems, seems to want to make there be any question about Brexit in the run up to the election. I mean, people are terrified about it. And in a sense, I mean, this is the other biggest change over the last seven years is what it's done to politics. It seems remarkable to think that eight years ago, you could be quite incredulous on hearing that there are you know, up to 100 Tory MPs who are willing to argue for any kind of a Brexit. Now arguing that it has been a bad idea is regarded as dangerous across the whole of Parliament. That is incredible. It's also wiped out a whole cohort of promising Tory MPs who might right now be leading the government. This is something we don't reflect on enough, that a whole bunch of people who never expected to be anywhere near government are now in government. Uh, I heard it from some of them personally under the coalition. They said, I'm a backbencher, I'd never get it. And then they end up in the cabinet. And that's going to have a really long-term effect on one of our major political parties. But um, it's the fact that we don't discuss it, I think the 2019 election is scouring the Labour Party a bit like the 1992 one did, where for the next 20 years and counting, they are terrified about setting out tax rises because they're worried the voters will throw them out and give them a shock defeat. And likewise, people are just terrified of being that party that seems to go on and revisit these wars and seem to go against the will of the people. And I think that neuralgic reaction is going to last for a while. 
Well, let's take a closer look at the part of the UK perhaps most impacted by the UK's exit from the EU, and that's Northern Ireland. The rows over whether borders should be on the island of Ireland or in the Irish Sea, the debates over the Northern Ireland Protocol, the uncertainty over the Windsor framework, and for now, no movement on any power-sharing agreement at Stormont. Jess, it's been a pretty fraught seven years for Northern Ireland, hasn't it? Absolutely, and it's been it's been a roller coaster essentially. I mean, it's it's easy to forget actually that in the very initial stages of Brexit back in 2016, there was actually some level of, of unity amongst the parties in, in Stormont and this uh, joint letter between uh, Martin McGuinness, who was then um, Deputy First Minister, and Arlene Foster talking about, you know, the implications for the region. But then in 2017, the executive collapsed through non-Brexit related reasons, actually, as a result of a, a scandal over there and, and then didn't get back up for about three years. So it was noticeably absent through a lot of this discussion, which I think is is part why we are where we are today. I think there's a lot of challenges going forward for the executive, most, most importantly, getting it re-established. But even so, even once it does now built into this process are these periods of review. There's the opportunity for the Northern Ireland Assembly to object to certain EU acts under it. So it's going to be a big feature of Northern Ireland politics going forward, as well as in the past, perhaps to a much greater extent than it will be in the rest of the UK. And this week at the IFG, we hosted Chris Heaton-Harris, the Northern Ireland Secretary. And this is what he had to say about the government's change of approach around the Windsor Framework. And then when the Windsor Framework came along, yeah, there's, there's a whole host of things that were behind it that will eventually, uh, I'll leave it for other people to, to bring out. But a lot of that well, you, it's very difficult to negotiate with people without trust, res- respect, but there's also an extra element that came into play there, um, which was confidentiality. There was an agreement to try and do things um, as, uh, as quietly as possible because uh, we'd, uh, both sides had experienced just mooting ideas to have them um, destroyed in, in the public arena, in the press, or in, the, in, par- in parliaments, or whatever it might be. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, we. we there was a, because there was trust and respect, there was therefore the space to do that, to explore what could be achieved. And actually, if you look at the Windsor framework, it doesn't dabble just with the kind of uh, the top layer of uh, the issues that we have in, in uh, that Northern Ireland has with the protocol. It does deal with many of the fundamental pieces and stuff that was going to come forward because the protocol had not been fully enacted. Um, We'd had grace periods that were coming to an end, infractions with the European Union that were, uh, were, where we're being taken uh, would have been, uh, gone further, um, bad blood accumulating. And um, so we needed to find solutions, if possible, to all of that. And so the, fra- the framework went a lot further than like, I think even I appreciated at the mm-hmm. time. Jess, what did you make of Heaton Harris's appearance? I mean, I think his analysis of what got us to the Windsor framework is, is broadly right. Trust and respect were really key in this. I think the EU needed to know that the UK did seriously want a deal and it would implement what had been agreed this time. I think that was always really important. Similarly, I think confidentiality was important. We noticed this tunnel as we got closer to the Windsor framework, which I think um was uh, really important in having these productive and constructive environments as opposed to what we'd had before, which were these kind of big public statements about overriding international law, the EU, EU responding with legal threats and proposals and counter-proposals that didn't really talk to each other um, and 
both sides kind of refused to respond to each other's ideas. But I think fundamentally what was really essential to, to getting a deal in the Windsor framework was a willingness to compromise at a political level. I think that was absolutely fundamental. And to be honest, I was quite surprised about how quickly an agreement and all the details were able to be drawn up once that was the case. Um, so I think we shouldn't overestimate the importance of being willing to compromise, um, because I think the the preceding years by that were characterised by increasing sort of polarisation and standoffs between the UK and the EU, all with implications for people living in Northern Ireland, businesses in Northern Ireland, people trading between Great Britain and Northern Ireland who are really bearing the brunt there. Giles, do you think Sunak will get any reward for having negotiated the Windsor Framework? Well, he has some reward already in that it amongst the kind of commentary at the makeup point zero one percent of the of the voting public that you know this showed his um very best virtues a sort of diligence a sort of seriousness that you need to go for a solution a kind of amiability that means he's pretty good at getting on with people in a in a in a, in a tight space and as a result he also managed to assert his own control over the party shortly after that Windsor framework agreement the vote on it happened around the same time as Boris Johnson appeared in front of the privileges committee and it was an overwhelming victory for Rishi Sunak it's kind of asserted that the conservative party now for now wants to go in his direction so there's that reward and I do think that history will judge him kindly which must be a huge um, comfort to him but as for whether the voters were well the voters including this voter were terrible at noticing Northern Ireland in the first place and terrible at being able to judge the counterfactual, all the hard work that was going into that. And I say that as a close observer of what Theresa May was trying to do to square the circle of these impossible border dilemmas in 2018 and 19. The voters will not give him any credit. And I doubt even the Northern Irish voters will. And I think that's a great pity, but politics is a brutal game. Anna, do you think Northern Ireland is going to end up with the best of all worlds? That's a very difficult one to say because um, it sort of feeds back to the other questions we've been having about what what are the what are the economic policies of either party going to look like going into the next election, and neither of them are going to be able to afford afford to ignore Brexit going into the next election, even if it's the last thing they want to talk about, because the TCA doesn't sort of begin and end; it isn't set in stone for all time. Um, it's a it's a living it's a living agreement that is is going to have to evolve with changing demands and it built into it is the fact that it has to evolve and built into it are consent mechanisms as well so I think it's going to be very hard to ignore it going ahead for for either party they're going to have to engage with some of the principles and also you know let's let's remember that one of the things that's going to be checked from October are imports if that doesn't go smoothly it's going to be very challenging to ignore it but it just going back to what Jess was saying about the political stagnation scenarios we've seen in Northern Ireland, I think it's very interesting for the union that really the very long-term fallout of, of what was a subsidy scandal, the renewable heat incentive scandal, and then um, more recently the SNP money questions. It's strange to think those financial scandals would have been a potential rupture in the union Anyhow, you know they're, they're causing a lot of a lot of big questions about what the shape of the union might look like going forward. Anyway, we all thought that, you know, that, that Scottish independence was going to be the the dominant question that might overshadow Brexit questions going into the next election. But the the situation around the SNP has changed that in the same way that sort of a lot of the the stagnation we saw in Stormont even even before we, we started getting to the nitty gritty implementation 
situations we've seen with with, with Northern Ireland um, uh, has changed things. But Northern Ireland's always had a bit the best of both worlds. From a business investment perspective, it does look like Northern Ireland has on some metrics um, slightly outperformed. But uncertainty is the biggest chilling effect always to business investment. And while the question remains live about what the long-term model looks like, be it in the UK, on the island of Ireland and Northern Ireland, then, then there are going to be very big questions indeed. And, you know, with, with the depletion of the Irish tech scene as well, it's, it's not necessarily as a slam dunk for the best of all worlds. Yeah. And I think just to build on that, I mean, one thing that Chris Heaton-Harris said um, in his In Conversation, I would strongly agree with, is that if you're going to attract investment, you need ministers to be able to talk to. And so I think the the absence of the executive going forward is is a real barrier to investment that that is potentially interested in, in Northern Ireland. And it's something that um, the UK government is putting a lot of money into, the Irish government is thinking about very seriously, and there's a lot of support there um, from the US as well. But until Stormont's back up and running and looking like it's in a stable place, it doesn't really seem like the most sensible place to, to put your money or to try and kind of build investment. Well, that's it for today. I'm sorry if it's been a somewhat depressing episode, but thank you for listening at home. And thank you to Jess Sargent, Giles Wilkes, and especially to Anna Isaac. You can find all our podcasts at iTunes, Spotify and all major platforms and be sure to subscribe and give us a good review. Check out our sister channel, IFG Events, where you'll be able to find a recording of the Chris Heaton Harris event this week. And do register for some of the great events we've got coming up, including an in-conversation talk I'll be having with former Chancellor Sajid Javid and a special Net Zero conference featuring Chris Gidmore and Ed Miliband. Have a great weekend, everyone. Just try to resist reading anything about the economy. <laughs>